Well, it's easy to identify other people's problems. You ever notice that? It's really easy to to figure out what other people are doing wrong. And I think the same can be said for uh, how we view other believers, even in the history of the church. Uh, We can look at times when the church just clearly blew it. Right? They just missed it altogether. What were they thinking? Right? Uh, there, there were the Crusades when uh, the church actually formed an army and went out with swords to try to fight and reclaim uh, the Holy Land from the Muslims. Now, there's a lot of issues going on at that time, a lot of Muslim aggression over the course of several centuries, a lot of pent-up frustration, but that is just not the church's mission, <laughs> right? We kind of look at that and think, what, what were they thinking? There was the time of Martin Luther when the Roman Catholic Church was filled with corruption. Things had got so bad that they, among other things, were actually selling forgiveness of sin. You know, I mean, just a a direct uh, undercutting of the gospel of God's grace. During the Holocaust, many churches in Germany turned a blind eye to Hitler's atrocities. Uh, Many churches supported the brutalities of the slave trade during the Civil War era in our own country. It's easy to identify other people's problems. But C.S. Lewis warned against what he called chronological snobbery. The idea that those who lived long ago had problems, but we now have it all figured out. Listen, every generation has their blind spots, including ours. I'm going to suggest to you that one of our blind spots in the 21st century Western church is our poor understanding, our poor theology of suffering. We talk a lot about how to avoid suffering. We uh, see therapists to help us get over our suffering, traumatic experiences that we had. But we've not been taught to expect suffering. We don't think about how We don't think about the indispensable role that suffering plays in the life of the Christian. Ajit Fernando, writing out of war-torn Sri Lanka, uh, identified this blind spot in the Western church. And he just said, without an adequate theology regarding suffering, Christians avoid the cross and move away from their call. And they are also unnecessarily unhappy when they face pain. If we don't have a good theology of suffering, we very quickly become disillusioned when suffering comes our way, right? Because after all, isn't God there to make my life easier? Isn't he there to bless me? If we don't have a really well-formed theology of suffering, we are going to set ourselves up for frustration in life. We live in an affluent, pleasure-oriented culture. And I would suggest that we've been influenced by the prosperity gospel more than we would like to admit. We want things to go well for us, (laughs) and we don't really factor in the role of suffering. Physical health and safety, even emotional well-being, have become the highest values in our culture. Um, I remember talking with a mission president 
several years ago, and I asked him, what are, you, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges you're facing in uh, missions today? And without hesitating, he said, Christian parents who don't want their children to be away from them and who don't want their children to experience any danger. Like this is kind of where we, we've come. This is our, our, our real comfortable view of the Christian faith. That's not the faith that's been handed down to us. That's not the calling we've been given. Right? Jesus told his disciples, the world has hated me and the world's going to hate you too. Uh, we, uh, when we become a follower of Christ, we begin swimming upstream and it is... Not always an easy path. A great deal of attention in our time uh, to avoiding and eradicating COVID. Really good efforts, rightfully uh, given an emphasis in our culture. But have, have we as Christians considered how God might be using the virus to accomplish his sovereign purposes? I mean, God is able to bring good out of evil, right? He's able to bring order and life out of chaos and death. Are we thinking those kinds of thoughts? We're frustrated by ungodly policies and ungodly political leaders. We want to see them ousted. We want to see these things corrected. But have we considered that God might want to use ungodly leaders to advance his purposes, as he has done so often throughout history? Are we thinking that way? What is the role of suffering and hardship and how is it contributing to God's bigger plan many uh, of you students had your first week of school this week and I would just venture to say that especially some of you older students have some teachers that you don't like elementary school teachers are just all wonderful by the time you get to high school not all of them are so you know they're not they're not just grandparent figures anymore and uh, you might be actively plotting how you can get out of that particular difficult class. But have you stopped to consider what God might want to teach you through that difficult teacher? It's a different way of thinking. Our hearts are heavy for the Afghan believers who are enduring persecution. We might even feel a bit angry that years of sacrifice in that country seem to have been squandered. But have we considered that God might actually be advancing the gospel through the displacement of people? He's done it before. When persecution broke out against the early church, Stephen, remember, was stoned. We're told that persecution broke out and the church was scattered. Uh, the, the, the technical word for that or the, the, is diaspora. The scattering of the church, and it's a really interesting word. It's the word that's used to describe the scattering of seed. So the early powers were trying to squash the gospel, but they inadvertently advanced the gospel. <laughs> you know, do we think about suffering with those kinds of lenses? I'm not suggesting that we should seek out suffering or take some morbid delight in pain, but I am suggesting that God has chosen to do his best work in the context of human weakness when things seem to be at their worst. 
This is certainly one of the primary lessons in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. It's where we're going to be here this morning. We're continuing our Route 66 series, road trip through the Bible, looking at all 66 books of the Bible in a calendar year, doing big picture overviews, uh, looking at major themes. And we find ourselves here in the letters of Paul. The little blue section down at the bottom uh, shelf uh, are the letters of Paul. Uh, We've considered, of course, the gospel accounts and how uh, after a long period of waiting through the Old Testament period, the promises are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, Christ accomplishes redemption, salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, It puts in motion a new eternal kingdom of peace. The church is established. We see that in the book of Acts. Uh, God calls out a people for his name, a redeemed people, uh, to be his, uh, his spokespersons in the world. And then uh, Paul writes a series of letters to this young church in various localities, helping them to fully understand the gospel and to live it out in their particular context. We noted that behind each of these letters, there's a backstory. So we read here in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on? What's the backstory here in this Letter. We noted last week, as we looked at 1 Corinthians, that Corinth was a prominent and affluent city in the first century. Part of that was due to geography. They were very uniquely positioned so that all the trade there between northern and southern Greece flowed through Corinth. So it was a wealthy city, influential. Uh, it was also a city known for sexual immorality. So uh, it's, a, it's a culture that's marked by pride and wealth and status and pleasure and self-promotion. This was Corinth. And it seems that a certain amount of that worldview, that me-first worldview, had made its way into the church. And so Paul calls for them to think, we over me. <laughs> he really confronts selfishness. Uh, in, in, in his first letter to this church. I think the other thing I really want you to know in terms of backstory here or backdrop is that the Apostle Paul was deeply vested in the life of this local church. Okay, this was not a form letter that he just rattled off and photocopied and sent off to all the different churches. No, he had a, a, a strong relationship. He had spent a lot of time, he had He had sweat and bled for this church, okay? Uh, And I think that's important to understand the the pathos of the letter that we're going to look at today. It's deeply emotional, and it flows out of a deep relationship. So I want to just trace the the meandering timeline here of Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 tells us how the church was established. Paul spent a year and a half there and helped them to become grounded in the faith. Uh, Paul wrote an initial letter of instruction, which we do not have, okay? 
Uh, it's referenced in 1 Corinthians. We know that Paul wrote something to them before he wrote 1 Corinthians. So he provided some instruction to them in that first letter. Paul received a bad report. Uh, we, we noted that last week as we looked at, at 1 Corinthians. He had, he had heard uh, some things that were happening that were deeply concerning. And so he issues a letter of correction. And that is what we have. That's 1 Corinthians, right? And then Paul makes a painful visit. In other words, the letter that he sent them with some instructions and some challenges did not have its effect. And so Paul, again, being deeply concerned about this strategic church, drops what he's doing and goes to Corinth. And uh, it was not a pleasant visit, okay? It was, it was tense. And then a letter of confrontation, uh, which again, we don't have. But Paul references this, that there was another letter of, of, uh, that, that, he had, that he had penned to them. And then, finally, good news, he receives a good report. Actually, Titus had spent some time in Corinth and comes back to Paul with a report and says that they're really doing well, they're taking things to heart, and then Paul writes a letter of affirmation. And that's what we have in 2 Corinthians, okay? You don't have to remember all these details. My point is, there's a lot of details. There's a lot of water under the bridge. This has been a long road. Paul loves these people, and he has invested heavily in them, and he's greatly concerned about their welfare. So again, that... that, that that explains why there's so much emotion in 2 Corinthians. This is the most autobiographical of all of Paul's letters. He shares his heart. He references tears and grief. His relationship with the church has been strained. He's lost sleep over them. He's been misunderstood and misrepresented. There's a little bit of anger thrown in. Uh, one commentator uh, describes 2 Corinthians like this. 2 Corinthians bears a fierce tone of injured love, of paradoxically wounded, relentless affection. The letter is passionate and uneven and sometimes explosive. Uh, that's a pretty good description. It's not real easy to outline 2 Corinthians, okay? It's sort of... And there, there's a little bit of that going on here. But again, it flows out of Paul's love. And I think it, I found myself really encouraged in 2 Corinthians this week. It kind of resonates with my heart. And um, I think part of what Paul reveals to us here, he gives us a glimpse into the challenges of making disciples. When, when you're involved in the lives of people, the, I've often told people ministry in ministry, uh, the highs are really high, and the lows are really low, because people's lives are at stake, right? And that's not just true for pastors or missionaries. This is the nature, if you're, if you're going to be involved in the lives of people and making disciples, as we've been commanded to do, it is going to be, at times, arduous and draining, So a quick summary of kind of where Paul's going, um, and then we'll stop and kind of, I want to trace a theme out here, okay, in, in regards to suffering, but, but just to kind of get a, a sense of, of where the letter's going. Paul wrote to express joy 
in the response of the believers in Corinth. These opening seven chapters. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 5, we we read uh, about this. For when we came into Macedonia, we had, this is Paul writing, for when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So Paul was in a really low place. He, 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 he was struggling in, in, in his ministry in Macedonia. There was a lot of pressures and stresses that he was facing. And when Titus came with that good report, he was so thankful. It, just, it was medicine to the soul. It brought him such joy. So in part, he's writing to, to express that to them. At the end of chapter 7, he says, I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Like, wow, we're good again. Our relationship has been restored. Uh, so that's certainly part of why Paul is writing. Paul wrote to encourage a generous collection for the church in Jerusalem. This is, seems to be maybe a totally different direction here, but in chapters 8 and 9, he focuses this whole section on a special offering that he was taking up. The church in Jerusalem had experienced a severe famine, and as Paul went around planting predominantly Gentile churches, he took up a collection for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And it was not just a financial issue. Paul had something else in mind. He wanted to forge a greater sense of unity between the, the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And he felt like if, if, if people would give generously, that would go a long way towards bridging some of the ethnic tensions that existed in the church. And Paul wanted this church in particular, the church in Corinth, to demonstrate love for others this is what was lacking in the church in corinth paul actually commends them in the first letter he says you you know you you i thank god for the 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 your your speech and your knowledge you know this church had some things going for them they were well grounded in the faith they had some good teachers there in the church but they did not have love paul spends that whole first letter urging them to show love. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, right? If you have all these other things, but you lack love, it's, it's like a resounding gong. It's just a noisy sound. <laughs> love is what draws it all together. So here, Paul wants to encourage this church to give generously. Uh, chapter 8, verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich." So Paul wants this church to show the selfless generosity of Jesus in their giving. 
Paul wrote to warn the church also regarding the presence of false teachers. Uh, There's a major change in tone when we hit chapter 10. Uh, So the church had responded well to much of his correction, but Paul still had some lingering concerns. False teachers had infiltrated the church, and Paul wanted the church to remain vigilant. He actually refers to these, um, these false teachers as super apostles. Uh, apparently, they were sort of bigger-than-life personalities, quite impressive, good public speakers, charismatic personalities, but they were preaching a different gospel than the one that Paul had entrusted to them. And I think it's a helpful reminder to just remember that the greatest threats for the church are not from without, but from within. Paul was so concerned that, that the purity of the gospel would be maintained and that the church would not be hoodwinked by some clever speaker, right? So, so he, he's charging them in this regard uh, to beware of false teachers. So, so those are some of the sort of main purposes that, uh, that certainly prompted Paul to write. Now, we started off talking about suffering, right? And our poor theology of suffering in the Western church. I would suggest to you that the, the Corinthians also had a poor theology of suffering. They were a prosperous, uh, uh, living in, in, a, in a prosperous city. Um, they wanted shock and awe. They had embraced what some have called a theology of glory. They wanted impressive speakers and big budgets and immediate and obvious results. They had embraced some level of a prosperity gospel. And to be honest, they had become a little bit disillusioned with Paul, a little bit disappointed in Paul. Paul was not a captivating public speaker. In an era that valued oratorical ability, he was rather plain spoken. His ministry was a bit rough at times. He had a lot of, encountered a lot of persecution. His ministry didn't often seem successful from a worldly standpoint. And he wasn't raking in the money. This comes up in chapter 11 too. Paul was tent making, right? He was working uh, uh, to support himself. And this too uh, seemed to be um, some sort of a black mark on his ministry. So, so Paul is responding to some of these critiques and wanting to present a theology of suffering. He wants them to see that God's power is generally displayed in human weakness. He wants them to think differently in these areas. So I want to look at just five. We could look at a number of places where this comes out in 2 Corinthians, but I'm going to look at just five spots uh, that I think help inform and build our theology of suffering and maybe address one of our blind spots. So we'll spend the few minutes we have left uh, looking uh, at that theme. Uh, number one, suffering produces compassion and allows us to enter into the suffering of others. Paul hits it right at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves 
receive from God. So God comforts us in our suffering so that for the purpose of equipping us to comfort others. See, when you've gone through a difficult experience, right, uh, you have a new level of empathy. Uh, Some of you who struggle with with mental illness and depression, you have a, a very sensitive radar to see some of those struggles in other people. Uh, that's part of the effect that suffering has in us. Another place we see this is in chapter 8, where Paul's talking with the church about, again, the, 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 the offering he wants to take up. And he's, he's challenging the Corinthians, and he's referencing the Macedonian believers. Again, Corinth was a very affluent society. The Macedonian believers were poor. And Paul wants to point out that the Macedonian believers had given generously to this collection. He's wanting to spur the Corinthian believers on to generosity. But notice what he says here about the Macedonian believers. Chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, able and even beyond their abilities, entirely on their own. So this Macedonian church had given a lot, not because they had a lot. Paul actually says that Their generosity flowed out of their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Verse 2. How does poverty, suffering, lead us to generosity? I think because poverty and suffering change us, don't they? I mean, this Macedonian church knew what it was to be without, to go without, to struggle, to suffer. And it had produced something in them. It had produced a compassion for the struggling church in Jerusalem. So as we think about a theology of suffering, we have to think about how suffering, what suffering produces in us. The Charter Day sketch that you saw today doesn't, doesn't capture all of the bumps and blow-ups along the way. If you want to talk to me on the side, I can fill in some of the gaps that aren't covered in the video. Right? Needless to say, uh, when Sherry and I came to the church 26 years ago, we encountered a group of people who had walked a trail of tears, had been through incredible hardship and struggle, and it had shaped their character. It was a depth of character and compassion that had, you don't just wake up one day and have that. Those things get produced and forged in a person's life. And so as we think about suffering, we don't relish it, we don't pursue it, but, but we recognize that it, it, it accomplishes something in us. That's a good starting point. Number two, our weakness highlights God's power. Paul reflects on his ministry and the role that weakness and suffering played in the advancement of the gospel. Uh, Chapter 4, 
Verses 1 and 2, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul says, we have refused to use emotional manipulation or psychological techniques or to twist the word of God to make it more palatable. We've simply presented the truth plainly, maybe even bluntly, and appealed to each person's conscience. Paul went out of his way to avoid any showmanship, right? He was not a huckster or a salesman. He was bringing a message from the king, the high king. Notice how Paul came to view his ministry, and particularly this this element of weakness in his own ministry. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Paul says we're jars of clay, a bit banged up, not much to look at. And God has chosen to put the priceless treasure of the gospel in clay pots in order to highlight the gospel and not the messenger. Right? The point is not the pot, but the contents. I've got a couple empty ice cream cartons sitting in my trash today. The ice cream's gone. That was the, that, 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 that was the treasure, right? The rest is just the carton. It's just what holds the ice cream. This is how Paul came to think of his ministry and why there was struggle and, and, and suffering and weakness. In some way, his own weakness served to highlight the power of the gospel. How else do we explain that the gospel's advance? It's certainly not due to our ingenuity or the ingenuity of those bumbling 12 rural Galileans, right? <laughs> Who couldn't get out of their own way. And yet the gospel spread and the church advanced globally. That, that's only God. You look at Eastmont Forest Hills should have been gone long ago. <laughs> it's only because of God. Paul makes much of his weakness. And Paul wants them to think in this life that God uses our weakness. He uses our our struggles and our sufferings to highlight his power and his grace. I mean, think about how often God put his people in impossible situations before he delivered them. Right? That's the story of Gideon. God said, you have too many soldiers. They were already vastly outnumbered. God said, you have too many soldiers. And they keep reducing the number to a pitiful amount. And then they prevailed against the Midianites. And it could only be explained as the work of God. How can there be 100 million Christians in China while a powerful communist government is is desperately trying to stamp out the church? can only be explained by the life-changing power of the gospel. Our weakness highlights God's power. Sometimes God puts us in positions of weakness, not because he's angry, but as a setup for his glory. 
Three, trials provide opportunity to validate our commitment to others. Trials provide opportunity to validate our commitment to others. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul uses very interesting language there in verse 4. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. We present ourselves to you We validate ourselves to you by our suffering. You can't question our motives. Look what we have gone through for you because we love you, because we were committed to bring the gospel to Greece. And I barely made it out with my life, but these are our credentials. This is the proof of our love. Paul hits it again. In chapter 11, again, going through a litany of all of his sufferings, and he does it to communicate, to bring gravitas. When he tells the church, I love you, I mean it. And you can see it. And I'll take my shirt off and show you my back if you don't believe me. Right? There's something about suffering that, that validates our words. Do you believe the gospel or do you only believe the gospel because of all the blessings that God gives you? <laughs> right? There's something about enduring suffering that shows the depth of our faith and of our love. G. Fernando tells this story about George Harley. George Harley was a medical doctor from the USA who went as a missionary to Liberia with his pregnant wife. He had obtained his medical degree from Yale University and his PhD in tropical diseases from the University of London. He served in a remote jungle area, which he reached after walking 17 days with his pregnant wife. After five years there, no one had responded to the gospel. Every week they met for worship and the people were invited to come, but no African joined them. Then his son died. He himself had to make the coffin and carry it to the place of burial. He was all alone there except for one African who had come to help him. As Harley was shoveling the soil onto the casket, he was overcome with grief. And he buried his face on the fresh dirt and sobbed. The African, who was watching all this, raised the doctor's head by the hair and looked into his face for a long time. And then he ran into the village crying, White man, white man, he cry like one of us. The following Sunday service, the place was packed with Africans. There's something that happens in the context of suffering that shows our heart, right? I remember playing basketball, community, enrichment league 20 years ago. And uh, I got really upset with somebody and kind of yelled at them. And they all know I'm a pastor. I'm thinking, this is, this is terrible. Like, I don't know how to get out of this, you know? I remember having to go back the next week and apologize to these guys. Something happened that night. I mean, these guys saw me in a different light. Uh, I wasn't just some pastor who didn't cuss all the time. You know, I, 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 had, an, I had an anger issue. <laughs> I had pride in my life. Something happened there that I, I could have never scripted. But in my weakness, God chose to advance some things and bring attention to the grace of the gospel. Suffering accomplishes things 
uh, in relationships. And it's certainly one of the things that Paul highlights here. Number four, brokenness brings us to repentance. I'm not going to dwell on this one here, but Paul talks about the pain that the church had experienced in chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. It was pain that Paul had initiated. Paul wrote a painful letter to them. And it was hard for them to hear it. It was hard for them to read it. But it brought them to repentance. It wasn't pleasant, but it was like the the doctor's scalpel that excised away the cancer. It was a good pain. And sometimes pain is like that. It gets our attention. We don't like to hear confrontation and correction, but uh, oftentimes our suffering uh, makes us stop and examine our priorities uh, in, in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. Suffering also keeps us humble and centered. Paul ends here in a very familiar passage, chapter 12, where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. Paul was an apostle, uh, but not in the traditional way, right? Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and in some supernatural way, uh, God communicated to him the message of the gospel. And in response to that, God also gave Paul a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Paul describes it here in chapter 12, verse 7. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. We don't know what the physical ailment was. Some have suggested poor eyesight. Paul had a big boat with a big sail, and God knew he needed a little ballast in the hull, right? Suffering has a way of reminding us of our mortality, reminding us of how much we need the Lord. Ultimately, God communicated to Paul this enduring principle, my power is made perfect in weakness, Paul, I'm not going to do great things because you are so ingenious, because you are such a gifted orator, because you have such tremendous physical strength. I'm going to accomplish things through you, through your weakness. Paul had to learn a new way of thinking, a way of thinking that he wanted to communicate to this church theology of suffering and weakness. Paul ends here in chapter 13 by pointing to the cross. Notice what he says. He really roots this theology of suffering, this theology of weakness in the cross itself, in the pattern of Christ. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. 
For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet God's power will live with him in our dealing with you. Paul says, I am seeking to embody the, the, the cruciform pattern of Christ, embracing the weakness of the cross, knowing that that is the path to glory. Several years ago, Ed Dobson and Cal Thomas wrote a book entitled Blinded by Might. Uh, Ed Dobson, of course, pastored at Calvary Church for a number of years, but Dobson and Thomas were part of what was called the moral majority in the 1970s. Evangelicals began to realize that they were a powerful voting block, and if they banded together, made enough noise, they could really change legislation but Dobson and Thomas came to realize their efforts were misguided. Misguided, They had become blinded by might. We too want shock and awe. We're blinded by might as well. We want to flex our muscle. We want to see obvious and demonstrative things take place in God's kingdom. But God's power is manifested in our weakness, Jesus had to tell his disciples to put down their swords. And we need to put ours down as well. Paul makes it very clear here in chapter 10, we don't fight with the weapons of this world. The Corinthians wanted to fight with the weapons of the world. Paul says, no, we fight with different kinds of weapons. Weapons that have the power to pierce the human soul. And so praying that God would do a work in me to give me a renewed understanding of the importance of suffering. And instead of being defeated in my weakness, I would come to understand that God is doing his best work in my weakness. And my prayer for you is that you would embrace that theology of weakness as well.